premium activity. Ah, primo activity. Yeah. That's what's up. This podcast was recorded on May the 4th, so may the 4th be with you. Anyway, happy Star Wars Day retroactively. Spoke with Ethan Siegel, and he's a theoretical astrophysicist by training. He left a promising career in cosmology and a job as a physics and astronomy professor to focus on science communication full-time. And I'm really glad that he has made himself available to us because he not only knows a lot of stuff from the work that he's done, but he continues to search and try to find answers and keeps abreast of what science is going on. And he does it with the enthusiasm of somebody that is seriously curious about the way that the universe works and he passes it along. Greg and I decided to ask him 20 questions and then we ended up asking him 14. But there are 14 good questions and 14 good answers, so please have a listen and definitely go to startswiththebang.com. Check out all the different avenues of communication that uh, Ethan uses to spread the word about the universe. Before I ask the first question, Greg does have the first question. I just want to say I do listen to and enjoy your podcast. And one of the most important things about it, what, what you do, is you feature people that are like PhD candidates and so forth. I think that's great just because of the fact that you're not only helping them promote their career a little bit, but helping them get in practice of promoting science as they're developing their science career. And it it really makes it a lot of fun to listen to, knowing that you got young people that are that are budding, not only scientists, but science science communicators. So, you know, there are a lot of people out there that, you know, you when you think when you're doing a podcast like yeah i want to get the most famous people i want to get the nobel prize winners i want to get you know i did that for a while and i discovered that you know this is great in terms of learning uh, how far we've come recently but it isn't necessarily great for getting you what are people working on now what are people who are looking over the horizon at the you know at the coming you know 20 30 40 50 years of their coming career uh, what are they excited about what are they working on and so for me I think it was just kind of a no-brainer to say you know early career scientists kind of need help in terms of exposure and uh, they also have unique perspectives to offer that I remember when I was an early career scientist that, you know, I was like, why do they have these meetings like the future of cosmology and the youngest person there is 65 years old um, like that. These are not the future of cosmology. And also, as a disclaimer, I'll note that we don't necessarily not know anything about what we're asking. So don't assume that we're we don't but we probably don't know enough to get it right. And that's where you come in. Well, you know, there are plenty of people who will be listening to this who um, may or may not have been exposed to this, uh, but don't have a lot of uh, experience or familiarity with it. So I won't just answer these questions for for the two of you. I'll answer them for everyone who's listening in. Exactly. That's what we're going for. So I guess I'll ask the first question. This is going to be a really stupid question, (laughs) but I noticed that when physicists talk about things, especially, well, almost anything in in the cosmos or anything that's really small, things are always spinning. And, you know, the small particles, their spin is a characteristic that they have. The word spin is used anyway to describe the characteristics. So it seems like everything spins, and it makes sense that, you know, a rock out in space is going to have unequal forces on it at some point, so it's going to be spinning, and everything seems to spin. And I'm just wondering... Does the universe itself have a spin? The whole universe, has. does it have a spin? And if so, 
how would that be observed? So this is actually something that uh, people thought about uh, very early on, right? You say, okay, when we look out at the distant galaxies in the universe, we can measure what we call the line of sight motion. We can see, are they moving towards us? Are they moving away from us? Because uh, if you have objects and you can measure the distance to them and you can also measure how much the light from them is either red shifted or blue shifted, you can infer, okay, even relative to the Hubble expansion of the universe, what are the peculiar velocities of these objects? And that means how are these objects moving relative to the Hubble flow, relative to the expanding universe at their location? What we can't measure directly is their transverse motion. We can't measure how are they moving uh, you know, not towards or away from us, but in those other two dimensions, either up and down or left and right from our perspective. And when you ask that, you know, you would say, oh, well, look, if things are getting farther and farther away and we see them receding faster and faster, then maybe they also have transverse motions. Maybe the universe overall has a large rotational motion to it. Uh, and so this was uh, actually a toy universe that was considered by uh, Godel. It was known as the Godel universe, and I believe it came up as early as the 1940s. Um, but we do have observational constraints. You can look out at the universe and you can see how the light emitted both from distant objects and that's absorbed by distant objects that comes from background sources uh how like what are certain properties of that light is the universe rotating overall what's fascinating about a rotating universe is it allows closed time-like curves. So if the universe were actually exhibiting a global rotation, it becomes possible to travel backwards in time. It becomes possible to have that backwards time travel, which is fascinating. Unfortunately, for those sorts of dreams, the observational constraints that we've placed on the overall rotation of the universe is that it's rotating at less than about 10 to the minus 8 revolutions per age of the universe. So if the universe is rotating, it's rotated by less than one millionth of 1% since the hot Big Bang. Um, so it is a good idea. It is an idea worth considering because you want to look out and know, is the universe rotating or not? And if it is or if it isn't, what are the quantitative constraints I can place on it? And the answer is... Uh, to a very good approximation, the universe is not exhibiting a global rotation. Okay, so this universe won't have time travel. Uh, not time. not via that mechanism. Not via not the via mechanism that. of the Godel universe. Okay, good. That's a really interesting answer. So, speaking, Mike, you got yeah. Speaking of rotation, um, a few years ago, I went down to Tucson, and then I drove from there down to the Kitt Peak Observatory, which is southwest, about 60 miles. And when I was on the tour, one of the things that we visited was the 2.1 meter reflecting telescope that Vera Rubin used to make her observation at the speed at which galaxies spin. And what was the significance of her work on understanding how the universe works? 
I mean, this is this is sort of a huge thing, right? The idea that maybe there's more mass out there than we could account for with the normal matter that we see has been around for a very long time. It actually started out in the 1930s with Fritz Zwicky. Uh, he was looking at individual galaxies within a rich cluster of galaxy, and he's saying, well, look, they're moving. I can measure their line of sight motions. This is 1930s. We, we've had this technology for decades now. So I can see all of these galaxies, they're clearly clustered together. They're clearly gravitationally bound together. Uh, and if I say, oh, I'm an astronomer, I measure the starlight and I know how stars work. So how much mass is there in all of the stars in all of these galaxies in this cluster? And he got a number. And then he said, okay, great. I'm going to also say, aha, Newton and Einstein, I know how gravity works. We're going to see how fast these galaxies are zipping around. And then I'll conclude how much total mass must be there to keep this cluster gravitationally bound. Um, and you would say, okay, great. You know the virial theorem. You know your theoretical physics. You know your your astronomy, you know your astrophysics. So on the one hand, we've got the total mass from all the stars we see, and on the other hand, we've got the total mass from the gravitation that we see. And you'd expect you'd get the same number if all the stars accounted for all the mass, but the numbers are actually off by a, over a factor of 100, according to Zwicky. And even with our modern determinations, because uh, Zwicky didn't know that the sun wasn't an average star, that on average, if you average them all together, stars are actually about three times more luminous than the sun, we're still off by a factor of 50. And even if you factor in all the mass that isn't stars, things like gas and plasmas and planets and black holes and gas and dust and, and all of this other stuff, you're still off by most of your mass. Somewhere between 83 and 85% of your mass is missing. Now, people looked at that and they said, Fritz Zwicky, he's crazy, ignore him. Uh, and for 40 years, more or less, they did. But when Vera Rubin came along, what she started to do using a spectrograph invented by her collaborator, Kent Ford, um, she was able for the first time to say, okay, now at last we have the resolution in our instrumentation that we can start looking at different parts of an individual galaxy and see as you move away from the galactic center, how do things rotate? If, because you know how dense things are based on what you observe, gas, dust, stars, you can quantify it all and say, okay, like the density is greatest in the center and things get less dense the farther away you move from the center. Um, so what you would expect is something similar to the planets in our solar system where Mercury orbits the fastest and then Venus and then Earth and on and on and on down to Neptune, which orbits the most slowly of all the planets. Neptune would have to orbit eight times as fast as it does to orbit as fast as Mercury. But when we looked at these galaxies, what Rubin found was that, oh no, like you go away at, from the center of the galaxy and you start off with this relatively high speed of a few hundred kilometers per second. And as you go farther and farther out, you find that the speed doesn't drop. It's almost like uh, this galaxy is rotating so that all the stars within it are moving around it at the same speed. Uh, so 300, two to 300 meters, kilometers per second everywhere you look. Um, and why is this? Well, it tells you that the normal matter 
and the laws of gravity we have cannot be the full story so there's something else so what vera rubin really did was she started off with her impeccable work because it was it was the first time that you could measure how an individual galaxy was rotating in different parts of it and throughout the 70s she did this for a, a whole slew of nearby galaxies and she really established look there's something going on here beyond what normal matter in the known laws of gravity can account for so in many ways vera rubin was the mother of our modern idea of dark matter We'll probably come back to dark matter a little later too because it's been in the news lately we should probably have started with this question in the beginning because it is about the beginning okay <laughs> and that is you know we know the big bang happened and then there was a the universe sure um, but there's some details in there you know what are the details can you just i mean everybody's heard this but few people can retain it you know what happened the time from the plank moment to the time you have this universe lighting up so the Planck moment is a little bit of a you know red herring there. So, but we'll we'll right. follow it down anyway. Uh, so the Planck moment is really when you talk about the Planck scale, Planck time, Planck energy, Planck mass, uh, Planck length. These are basically the smallest units that you can deal with physics in, where things stop making sense. Right? You can say, okay, I know the laws of quantum mechanics. I know the rules of general relativity. I know that in the quantum universe we have these fluctuations in matter in energy and time in in position and momentum right we have all these quantum fluctuations um but the smaller of a time interval we look at the larger of an energy fluctuation we get and the Planck limit is basically saying if you look at a smaller time scale than this particular value what happens is a random quantum fluctuation will be so energetic that it will make its own black hole. That's not really a physical thing because the universe is not just spontaneously making black holes out of nothing all the time. So at that point, we're forced to say, okay, look, we can go up near the Planck scale and be confident in our physics, but we're not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole because... Uh, we know at some point our laws of physics are breaking down and arguably until we understand how to merge quantum theory with the theory of gravity, we're just talking nonsense. Um, but if you start asking about time intervals like that, we learn that first off, the Big Bang was not the very beginning of everything. It was set up and preceded by a different phase of the universe called cosmic inflation. So what we call the Big Bang has not been, in the eyes of theoretical physicists, um, the origin of the universe in a little over 40 years. We've known about cosmic inflation for that long, and it's really been over the last 30 years or so that the observational evidence that tests a Big Bang without inflation versus a Big Bang that was preceded by and set up by inflation um, has been put to the observational test. And so far, uh, the Big Bang without inflation has lost on every count. Its predictions do not match observations, whereas the one with inflation does. So coming back to that, okay, you have cosmic inflation. The universe inflates, which means it expands not just rapidly, but relentlessly at an exponential rate. And at some point, it's driven by the energy inherent to the fabric of space itself. 
at some point, and this is what we identify with the Big Bang, that energy inherent to space decays and it transfers from being a part of space to getting dumped into what we think of as particles and antiparticles, matter, antimatter, and radiation. So what we call the Big Bang is actually not the beginning of the universe. It is the first time we can describe the universe as we know it, as being hot, dense, full of matter and radiation, and not only rapidly expanding, but the expansion rate drops and the universe cools as it evolves. So that's what the Big Bang is. And then what you say is, okay, now let's follow it forward. You start with this hot, dense, almost but not quite perfectly uniform state. Why isn't it uniform? It's because there were these quantum fluctuations during inflation. And if inflation expands the universe exponentially, that means it stretches something as small as the Planck length to being larger than the presently observable universe in an extraordinarily small amount of time, something like 10 to the minus 32 seconds. So these quantum fluctuations are constantly being generated. Inflation is stretching them across the universe. And that was where we think the initial imperfections in the universe, these seed fluctuations, these overdense and underdense regions at about the one part in 30,000 level come from. So as the universe expands, it cools, right? And the reason it cools is because light has a wavelength and the wavelength of light determines its energy. As the universe expands, it drags the wavelength of light along with it. So the wavelength of light expands too, and that means it gets cooler. So we go from a universe where you're spontaneously, bam, making matter and antimatter pairs out of pure energy and they're finding each other and annihilating away again but as the universe cools it gets harder and harder to make the heavier things and it also gets harder because things are expanding and getting less dense for these matter and antimatter pairs to find each other and annihilate away so if you're an unstable particle of matter and antimatter you're going to decay as the universe expands and ages so as this happens, we go through a bunch of transitions. It becomes impossible to make the heaviest unstable particles. At some point, there was some type of decay that happened or transition that happened that broke the symmetry between matter and antimatter. We know for about every one billion particles of antimatter that existed in the early universe, there were somehow one billion and one particles of matter. And we can tell this based on the leftover ratio of photons to baryons, things like protons and neutrons in the universe today. So things cool, they expand, and you make your atomic nuclei for the first time, and you annihilate antimatter away until you just have this little leftovers in this bath of radiation. And it takes hundreds of thousands of years for things to cool enough that your atomic nuclei and your electrons can actually stably form neutral matter. And then it takes another tens or even hundreds of millions of years before gravitation will pull enough matter into these overdense regions to to form the first stars. But it's this initial first few, you know, fraction of a second to the first few hundreds of million years in the universe uh, that 
so many of us are interested in. These are in many ways like the missing frontiers that we can't see everything directly. We can only see the clues of what's left over. By the way, it's arbitrary that we call it matter versus antimatter, right? Yeah, yeah. We we don't know of a symmetry that, you know, says, okay, uh, like, what if we're made of antimatter and right. like there's a little bit more antimatter than normal matter it it's completely right. arbitrary it's sort of like so, like what's the difference between left-handed and right-handed like it's kind of right. arbitrary which one we called left and which one we call right right i think we should call it antimatter just be more interesting uh if that'll get more people <laughs> interested in it i'm not opposed to it <laughs> what is a cosmological perturbation uh, a cosmological perturbation is basically an imperfection. It's a departure from perfect average uniformity. If you have a little difference in density or temperature, that's a perturbation because you are perturbed from the average value, from the uniform state. And these perturbations are important because we live in a very non-uniform universe today. You know, you look out and you have stars and galaxies and then nothing and nothing and nothing and then more galaxies and clusters of galaxies and nothing and nothing and nothing. So how did that happen? Well, it had to grow from some seeds, especially if the universe was born so close to perfectly uniform, you needed to have some initial non-uniformities or perturbations from uniformity that got you there. And so when we talk about cosmological perturbations, we talk about these imperfections and how they evolve over the history of the universe. I'm going to ask Mike to ask the next two questions because they were, they're connected and they're both his questions. Okay. All right. Thanks, Greg. So we got first light from the JWST or the James, James Webb um, Telescope, but it's also an observational laboratory for radiation that is outside of the visible spectrum. Has there been any exciting news from observations of what we can't see yet? I mean, so James Webb has not begun to do its science operations yet. It is still in the process of being calibrated. But in other wavelengths of light, uh, beyond visible light, we've learned a ton about the universe uh, over its history. We've had, um, we've had gamma ray and X-ray observatories like Fermi, Swift, and Chandra. We've had ultraviolet observatories like Galax. We've had infrared observatories like Spitzer and Wise. We've had microwave observatories like COBE, WMAP, and Planck. And we've had radio observatories like SPECT-R and all sorts of things on the ground as well. But I just gave you a list of some space-based missions. Um, and what we're learning is all sorts of properties because Let's say you wanted to look in all these different wavelengths of light. What can you learn? Well, at the highest energies, you're going to see the hottest, most energetic thing. You're going to see high energy photons emitted from these cosmic particle accelerators like pulsars and black holes. In the X-ray, you're going to see this ultra hot gas that gets heated up by collisions and rapid star formation. In the ultraviolet, you're going to primarily see hot, young, blue, newly formed stars in visible light yeah fine we know about that go to infrared though what can you see well you can see cooler redder stars you can also see dust and gas that gets heated up in the interstellar medium uh, 
you can see candidate sites for where the next generation of new stars will form. As you go into the microwave, you can see all sorts of things like the dust in our galaxy. We've made the most exquisite dust maps ever to know what are all the galactic foregrounds that are contaminating our other observations. We've also been able to see the leftover glow from the Big Bang directly. That was once high energy light but as the universe has expanded it's cooled through visible light through infrared light all the way into the microwave part of the spectrum in fact if you have an old television set with those bunny ears that you use for antenna and you set it to channel three about one percent of that snow you see on the tv is the cosmic microwave background if you took that tv set out to intergalactic space and you shielded it from all of the thermal radiation that gets produced and you cooled it down to near absolute zero you would still see that leftover glow the cosmic microwave background and in the radio we start to see some of the first hydrogen atoms in the universe because whenever you make a neutral hydrogen atom there's a 50% chance that the electron and the proton in that atom are going to be spinned opposite to one another that if one of them spin up the other one spin down but there's also a 50% chance that the spins will be in the same direction and when that happens there is a quantum chance that you can quantum tunnel to the flipped spin state and that emits a specific photon of precisely 21 centimeters in wavelength so 21 centimeter astronomy is a growing and emerging field and it's looking in all these different wavelengths of light not just optical light not just visible light that we can untangle all the things we've learned today about the universe when james webb comes online it's going to view the infrared which goes this is actually going to go from the far end of the visible light spectrum all the way through the near infrared and get most of the mid infrared it's going to go from about half of a micron to about 30 microns in wavelength and it's going to teach us about gas dust star formation planet formation uh, all of these details that are invisible to the optical wavelengths of light that our eyes can see I think that's amazing. Been what about 120 years that we've even known that there's that our galaxy is, you know, not the universe, and now we can see all the way out, you know, that far just in that short amount of time. We've learned how to do that. It's only been 99 years, 99 Nine. years that we confirmed that the very first spiral nebula that we were able to identify a distance to is outside of the Milky Way. Um, so it's really only been 99 years that we've known that the Milky Way is not the entire extent of the known universe. And in that time, we've gone from thinking that maybe the Milky Way is the only galaxy in the universe and all of the universe is contained within it to knowing actually we can see for about 46 billion light years in all directions. The universe is finite in time because the hot Big Bang occurred 13.8 billion years ago and within the visible universe there's somewhere around two trillion galaxies to observe claude levy strauss the anthropologist uh he was his um, father was a ambassador to brazil from france during world war ii and that got him into brazil to study the indians who lived in the amazon and he lived with them in the 40s as a young graduate student. He lived with them in the 40s and he wrote about 
the Anamamo, like Indians like the Anamamo today. And he wrote a book in which he lamented, and he said, it, it, if I only had a recording machine, what could I have done with understanding the language and taking notes and recording things that happened? But they weren't invented yet. I didn't have a, the wire recorder was available to me when I returned from the field. I didn't know it existed. But had I come out to that exact spot 10 or 15 years later, it would have been a big, giant cattle ranch. The forest would be cut down. And there'd be no people. It's just interesting that you mentioned the universe is 15. I'm off, I'm off the script here. I'm like, well, the universe is 15 billion years old since the hot Big Bang. Um, the Earth and our system is what five or Earth five million years five billion years old. Yeah, we're about That's a like third a, the age of the universe. Yeah, which makes me think the universe is really young. <laughs> you know, because if we're here for a whole third of it, that's like if I am my age and and the history of the country I lived in was three times that. It's not that old of a country. You well, know? It's just. Whenever you come of age, you know, whenever you come around, you only know the time that happened before up until now. Right. You don't know right. how much time is left in the future. And you don't know whether that means like, oh, we're almost at the end of the universe or actually the universe is going to go on for orders of magnitude more time than we've been around for. So whether we're old right. or young, uh, thankfully, I'll say I'm pretty sure that answer is written on the face of the universe. When we go out and we say, the one thing we have been able to do this for is stars. We know that today the universe is only forming stars at about 3% of the rate it was forming stars back when star formation was at its maximum. That the okay, universe well, formed stars, more stars, more stars, more stars, until it was about 3 billion years old. And ever since, for the last almost 11 billion years, star formation has been plummeting. So it's possible that there are many, many more stars to come, and this will be a long tail that we'll have. Yeah. But it's also possible the universe has already formed most of the stars and most of the planets that it's ever going to form. And so right. even though time might go on for longer, um, that we might be one of the last best chances for everything that arose here to arise. Right. So the question for the statement, may you live in interesting times, to a cosmologist has some real meaning. <laughs> I think they're all I mean, interesting. I don't interesting I don't worry about it. Like if I, if we lived if we lived 12 yeah. billion years ago or 100 right. billion years from now, I'd think both of those epics were fascinating too. Yeah. I'm well, sure they are, but they're different. Yes. Like that itself is interesting. That's <laughs> So, I'm going to ask this question that might this much more pragmatic, which is um but I don't know if you want to feel this now, but what do you think is a current and likely near future state of fusion technology to make energy? You might explain how it works briefly, but um, can I throw out my old fission plants yet? Uh, you know, here's the whole thing, right? With nuclear fission, right? It's a very nice way to get energy. It's how energy comes from the sun and all of the stars in the universe. And very simply, you can take some very ubiquitous raw ingredients like the light elements and fuse them under the right conditions, temperature, pressure, density, etc., to make something heavier where the sum of the mass of the products is less than the sum of the mass of the reactants. So where does that mass go? Well, it gets turned into energy via Einstein's e equals mc squared, and that's the simple version of fusion. 
Why is fusion good compared to, say, nuclear fission? Well, there's no risk of a plant meltdown, it produces much, much less radioactive waste, and it's much more energy efficient. So why don't we have nuclear fusion on a widespread commercial scale today? Well, there's two reasons. One is that we have never actually invested anywhere near a sufficient amount of money and resources into investigating how to make it plausible. Um, the efforts towards that, like, the Jet P reactor and Tokamax and the ITER reactor, uh, they're you know they're, they're great for what they are. But I look at this and I'm like, what are we doing throwing like pittances at this problem? If we invested like a half a trillion dollars as a species, we'd actually really know if we could solve basically humanity's energy crisis for a tiny fraction of the GDP of the world. Um, but we haven't done that yet, and there are really no plans to do that in the future. So, you know, if you're familiar with the old adage that fusion is 20 years away and always will be, um, yeah, as long as you continue to fail to invest in an emerging technology, the technology is not going to emerge. So it's not easy. It's a field that's full of frauds and grifters, but also it's a tremendous hope. And once we achieve it, uh, we will be able to generate virtually unlimited energy from it without further polluting the planet that you're not sure if it's possible it's what you physically kind of possible hopeful. i'm not yeah, sure well, yeah. that it's plausibly practical there are some issues yeah. with how can we make a self-sustaining fusion reaction where we can extract more usable energy than we have right. to put into it to make the reaction occur without destroying or damaging the reactor where these you know nuclear reactions that occur inside the sun are happening um so right. I'm not saying that these are trivial engineering problems to deal with, but they're engineering problems. The physics is sound. It's just a question of how do we do it. And I suspect it will take a lot of breakthroughs from a lot of hardworking, smart people. And right now, we are just not funding a lot of hardworking, smart people to go to work on this. So, yeah. you know, if you want fusion to take off, I'd say, you know, put your money where your dreams are. Right. Not That's not you. Like... Okay all the governments of the right. world. Yeah, I don't have a trillion dollars handy. But <laughs> yeah, okay. Elon wants to go to Mars instead of investing in something like that anyway. Yeah, you so. bet on the wrong horse. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm kind of curious about how a five-second flash of incredible power and heat uh, would get into our power lines. But I understand what the concept is of trapping the the process in with a magnetic field so um but it's going to be 100 million degrees you can't boil water uh, doing that like you do with a nuclear fission how how do you actually convert get that into your power lines that's what i'm not really clear on well what you don't want to do is you don't want to go with the inertial confinement fusion approach where you take like these lasers from all these different sides and you strike them with a pellet and you produce this giant blast of energy like that's impressive for laser technology and how much energy you can get out uh, but it's not very impressive for producing like uh, a specific amount of usable energy what a tokamak approach is where you have a confined plasma inside a device is this would have a sustaining series of fusion reactions where that energy you could basically surround your tokamak reactor if you could have it go in a self-sustaining way with a tank of water 
and then it'll boil the water and you can put a turbine above it and the steam will rotate the turbine and just like we've made every power plant throughout most of history from oil nuclear coal wind etc you boil water a turbine turns and that's where you get your electricity from so that would be the same approach for a nuclear fusion plant the catch is your water will become radioactive so you need a way to deal with that as well uh, that's a problem for fission reactions as well um, but that would continue to be a problem with fusion reactions that you would have to have water containment and treatment and basically allow for the time necessary for tritium which is a heavy isotope of hydrogen that has one proton and two neutrons to decay away tritium has a half-life of about 12 years so you would have to store that for about you know a century or two to have that return back to okay now we can mix that back in with the water and we're not gonna you know get blinky the three-eyed fish out okay um ethan is there excess light in the universe what is it and how much is there why is it important if there is excess light why do i need to keep recharging my flashlight batteries oh well um there is excess light which is to say um there are the sources we've identified, right? You have stars and galaxies and all of that, and we know astrophysically how those things work. So we see the light that's produced there, but then you subtract that out and you say, okay, well, what's left? And some of it is like, okay, well, we've got this lousy zodiacal light here in our solar system, and that kind of blinds us to whatever excess may be out there because, you know, you have sunlight reflecting off of particles in the solar system. Well, the New Horizons spacecraft is our only fully operational spacecraft that's on its way out of the solar system, right? We have four others, the two Pioneer and Voyager spacecraft, but they were launched in the 1970s. And so they've got 1970s technology on board. But New Horizons has gone out beyond the zodiacal light and it's been able to image the universe and find, hey, there's more diffuse background light than we suspect is out there. So people are actually speculating over what's causing it. Are there excess stars out there that are below the limits of our instruments to resolve as sources? Uh, where is this starlight coming from? Is it reflected light off of dust? What's the origin of it and what are the implications of it? This is an active area of research. Why do you need to keep recharging your flashlight? Uh, because you need more light than excess starlight provides. That excess starlight is not going to help you find your cat at night. You need a flashlight to do that. But this is a more pra pragmatic question that relates to flashlights. Oh. And I just, I, I read this uh, explanation for this question in a book a while back. And I thought it was really interesting and illuminating. Uh, very illuminating. But I'd like to hear your, your version of how to explain how an LED light works. Uh, an LED light is like a miniature golf course um, where your electrons are the golf balls and the hole is like the ultimate goal. LEDs are not like, okay, I'm going to take a thing and I'm going to heat it up and it's going to glow and emit light all over these ways. Like, no, there's a specific goal. There's a hole that you want to get your electron in. There's a hole that you want to get this golf ball in. And if you can hit this electron just right so that it sinks in the hole, then what happens when it drops in there is it emits just like electrons transitioning from a higher level down to a lower level 
in an atom well this is in a complicated you know structure um, in a complicated like often crystalline lattice structure but when it makes that transition it emits a photon of a specific wavelength uh, red leds were first green and yellow came later blue leds only came this century blue leds were way later they won the nobel prize in physics just about 10 years ago so um it's really that development of oh if we can get red and yellow and green and blue leds now that's what led to the explosion in smartphone technology that's what led to the explosion of led monitors and led technology and led lighting that's so ubiquitous because we were able to finally cover the full visible spectrum it's basically a way to say we're going to make a more energy efficient light source where you're going to get more of your overall electrical energy getting converted into luminous light that you can observe get the ball in the I'd hole heard. it's like yeah, a happy gilmore I, movie yeah the explanation i'd heard made reference to it was i think it was a racetrack where if things happen just right the electron if the wavelength of the electron was just slightly larger than a certain point it was always bouncing against the outer wall of the racetrack, but it was just the right wavelength that shoots out. And that may have been more of an explanation for laser, the laser part of it. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know either, but if that analogy resonates better with you than getting the ball in the hole, no, run with it. I, I, I actually didn't resonate that well with me. I like the, I like the uh, golf course analogy. That's pretty, pretty good. So the next question is, why do some galaxies have a dark matter shadow um, and others do not? Well, I don't know what you mean by shadow. Um, what do you mean by dark matter shadow? Do I, you mean halo? I, I guess, is this my question? Yeah, you wrote it, but I <laughs> okay. wasn't first. It, it was, I think it was based on something I'd read, maybe even on your blog or somewhere, but I heard, actually it was in a Sean Carroll podcast, some... Dark matter is associated with matter. Galaxies have dark matter. But some galaxies appear to lack dark matter. Yes, that is correct. That's, that's the question. Why is that? What does that mean even? Okay, so imagine you've got your universe, right? We're going to start off early on, hot Big Bang, right? The universe expands and cools, and it has these imperfections. The overdense regions are going to grow. They're going to preferentially attract matter from their surroundings to them. This includes normal matter and dark matter. When normal matter, right, the stuff made out of atoms like us, when that falls in, what happens? Well, normal matter smacks together it interacts with itself it has a substantial cross-section so things smack into each other they can stick together they can lose momentum and angular momentum they will sink to the center but the dark matter doesn't smack into itself or light or normal matter at all and it just like takes the plunge and goes back out and takes the plunge and goes back out so dark matter exists in this big fluffy diffuse halo and the normal matter exists in like a small region relative to the halo so we think the milky way's dark matter halo extends 10 or 20 times in radius the stellar extent of the milky way so things go out a long way in terms of dark matter halos. So what would happen 
to create a galaxy without dark matter. Well, what happens when you have, let's say, a galaxy with dark matter and another galaxy with dark matter, and they get close to each other? Well, they're going to gravitationally interact, which means one galaxy is going to pull on the other, and the other galaxy is going to pull on the one. But what that will do is it will create a tidal force. These are not point source objects. These are extended objects. And the side of each galaxy that's closer to one another is going to experience a greater gravitational force than the side that's farther away from each other. And what that will do is this tidal force will basically you exert different forces on different parts of the galaxy and that can rip gas and dust and stars out of the galaxies. And when it does, if you rip enough of it out, yeah, the galaxies will continue on to exist with normal matter and dark matter through them. But in between, you can have just normal matter by itself. So that normal matter by itself can create at least temporarily before they're further torn apart by passing galaxies and those tidal forces can create galaxies without dark matter, with normal matter only. There's a second way, by the way, that you can make them. And there's a team uh, led by uh, Maria Montez that is looking at this possibility, which is that actually, if you just have a normal galaxy with a big dark matter halo and like the stars in the middle. Um, what happens when you get a big galaxy that comes nearby? It's gonna exert tidal forces on this smaller galaxy and it will tear it apart, but it'll tear it apart from the outside in. So the outside dark matter gets stripped away first, and then the next inner more dark matter gets stripped away, and then the last bit of dark matter gets stripped away, and finally, close to the center, the normal matter starts to get distorted. In one of the galaxies that we found that we say is dark matter free, this is a galaxy uh, whose phone number is NGC1052-DF4, if you want to give it a call. Um, that galaxy looks like it has no dark matter, but it also looks like it's being tidally disrupted. So that is another possibility. So there are at least two ways in the universe to make galaxies without dark matter. But what's interesting is the only way to have a universe that has galaxies with dark matter and galaxies without dark matter is to have a universe that has dark matter in it. But again, I think we should reverse the name. Normal matter should be the dark matter, and the matter we, we can see and touch should be dark matter. You know, this one I actually have an opinion on. <laughs> if I had my choice, I would rename dark matter because it is not dark. Dark things right. absorb light. Nor uh, What we call dark matter is actually invisible matter. It's non-luminous yeah. non yeah. matter, uh, but light and normal matter and itself all appear to just pass through it. So dark matter, uh, kind of a misnomer. It's dark yeah. in the sense that we have a lot of ignorance around it. It's not dark in the sense that it is the black color of space. Right. I agree with that. We should call it invisible matter. I guess I should ask the next question because I had put it down there and then Mike, you take it over after that. This is just something that's always bothered me a little bit. Or I mean, there's probably some historical explanation I just don't know. But the speed of light is 300 million meters a second right? sure why is it a relatively 
round number in meters per second. Why is it a relatively round number? I mean, if you think 299792458 meters per second is a nice round number because it's close to 300 million, then great. But it's really just our arbitrary definition of a meter and a second. Okay, so the meters and seconds were not defined on the basis of the speed of light, obviously. No, I mean, today we have circular definitions. Like the speed right. of light is the fixed things. And right. atoms have transitions where the electrons, you know, go from one energy level to another. So what happens? Well, you say, okay, we're going to define the meter as when this electron goes boop, 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 in an atom and it emits a light wave, how many crests of this light wave do you need to make a meter? That's a meter. How many crests of this light wave do you need to have a second? That's what we define as a second. How do we have, you know, it, it is though, it's just completely arbitrary. When we do miles per second, it's not a round number. When we do meters per hour, it's not a round number. Meters per yeah. second, sure, it happens to be a nice round number kind Kind of but that's just random coincidence yeah because the meter is based upon the size of the earth yeah the original meter was a fraction of the of the of what was thought to be the circumference of the earth like, well, that doesn't and, work out well anymore i wasn't aware no, of that no, definition it, it, it's an 18th 17th century number that you know but that was the concept yeah, I mean, the kilogram wasn't until like just a few years ago, wasn't the kilogram based on like right. the mass of this uh, weight that they had in France? Right. Yes, and the, and the problem there was that the mass in France over time had lost mass. <laughs> I mean, it was 200 years old. So obviously, you know, got cosmic rays had removed a tiny bit or something. Anyway, okay, so that was, I just was wondering, because I know it's not a perfectly round number, but it just seemed... A little bit too like there might be some historical story behind that uh if there is i don't know it well enough to tell it there, <laughs> or, I did find in like 1976 when we were actually learning the metric system um because we thought we were going to convert to it but it does have something to do with um starting out at the the pole to the equator was 10,000 kilometers and then um the weight and the mass was based on something or other and then they used that um they, they cast they cast that piece to to be like a steady measurement against you know a standard for um everything just because they thought that it would be it would never change and that they could always refer to it if, if they needed to and some of these things fit together like a cc of water at room temperature yeah is a gram, is a gram right it takes a, a fixed amount of a calorie of, of energy to move it by one degree celsius yeah i mean that they, that was all on purpose Right. And it was right. also all slightly inaccurate. <laughs> and also we don't use calories anymore. We use joules. And, right. uh, you know, then it's not a nice round number like one. It's like 4.18. Um, but right. thankfully, we've gone beyond these, you know, uh, what I would say are uh, you look back at these definitions from the, you know, 18th, 19th and even 20th centuries. And, you know, you go, oh, look at our adorable species in its infancy with these cute little definitions. <laughs> right. uh, and exactly, thankfully, yeah. today's uh, NIST standards uh, are much superior to that and more universal. But still, somehow, the English talk about their weight in, in stone, so right. we're not quite as advanced as we thought. But... I mean, look, like, we're, we're Americans, and, uh, you know, you can pry my cups and ounces from my cold, dead hands, right? <laughs> right. I'm, I'm going to skip down to number 17 because we're getting close, but um, 
I, I am really curious about um, what we refer to as Vader Tractor. It's something out there that's blocked from our view by the hub of the Milky Way. But do you think that we'll be able to ever figure out what is the great attractor that seems to be pulling so much of our uh, matter towards it? So the great attractor was basically an idea saying like, look, we see that the Milky Way and all the galaxies around us are moving at a greater speed in a particular direction than we can account for. And therefore, there has to be some big unseen mass out there in the direction which we're moving. Because we see some masses out there, we see some galaxy clusters, uh, but they're only about half of what needs to be out there to account for our motion. So you say, okay, great, there's something else out there and we'll call it the great attractor and what a great mystery it is. Guess what, no, no, we are moving out there. There isn't enough mass in that one particular direction to explain why we're moving there at the speeds we are. But guess what you see when you look in the opposite direction? You see a roughly equal magnitude under density in the opposite direction. So we have what we call a dipole repeller, where on one side you have mass that's pulling us towards it, and on the other side you have a lack of mass that isn't pulling us back towards that. So, you know, I know you're used to thinking gravity is always attractive. Well, if I said instead of starting with zero mass, and having a positive mass and a negative mass, what if I started with an average amount of mass and in one direction I had an extra amount of mass and in the opposite direction I had a below average out of amount of mass? The below average amount of mass would effectively repel me. So I would be willing to bet that this is correct, that the work of Tully and Courtois and Pomerade and others is actually robust we do have a dipole repeller and you're not going to find a mysterious mass out there that's the great attractor because half of the great attractor has been found and it's there and the other half is a repeller not an attractor so in a sense the great attractor is not merely invisible it's also non-existent well, uh, the great attractor is really saying, like, we incorrectly assume this is the solution to this problem, when in fact right. there are other solutions that are plausible, and the universe agrees with one of the other ones, not the one we initially suspected. And that's why we have graduate students to generate these new ideas and grow up with them. And yeah, I mean, you know, part of part of science is disabusing yourselves of the last generation's collective illusions. Yeah. Um, and hopefully that is something that never ends. And someday, a hundred years in the future, people will look back on this podcast and you will have fact checkers demolishing half the things I'm telling you now. We'll just erase it at that point. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and it's with fine. that, nobody explains this stuff better than you do. Well, thanks for having Always me and giving me the chance to do it. You know, I think the universe is for everyone who's curious and open-minded, and I'm going to just keep doing my best to reach as wide and diverse an audience as I can. If you want to know about it, the universe is for you. Appreciate it very much. Thank you for your time. And everybody should go to, to uh, Ethan's blog, Starts with a Bang, and we'll put in our show notes the um, references to that. Sounds right. perfect. 
Thank you for downloading and listening to Iconocast. Be sure to go to the website where you can get some information on the work that Ethan does in communication that starts with a bang. And continue to share this information with everybody that you know. Someday we'll get big enough to actually have some ads. But for now, you're listening to it rent-free. And keep on keeping on with it.